Even when I came forward in my allegations against the governor, I tried to, you know, find, I said, well, where's the example of the woman's career not at all being affected by this? And um, my team, my kind of trust circle that I had brought together, including my lawyer, they're like, well, there isn't one. <laughs> and that was scary because you kind of see yourself looking at the abyss yeah. like, oh my gosh. Hello! Welcome to Statement Mondays, where we explore how different women harness their identities at work. I'm your host, Natalie Munster, and if you need a reason to be bold today, here it is. Today is Statement Monday. Before I introduce our guest, I have an announcement. I'm moving to New York in June. So two things here. One is I'm very much looking to meet new people, so if you'll be around, let me know. And two, I'm also going to be taking a break from publishing episodes, so next week will be the last episode of Season 1 of Statement Mondays. If you haven't already, follow or subscribe to Statement Mondays to make sure that you don't miss out on Season 2. Great! So our guest today is a woman who you may have heard about in the news lately, Lindsay Boylan. She's a career urban planner and politician in New York, and she was also the first whistleblower against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo earlier this year for sexual harassment. So in the interview you're about to hear, Lindsay talks about how lifting others up is motivation behind pretty much everything she does. We discuss how coming out against sexual harassment in the public eye has affected her own identity, or not, and also how connecting with women of all generations is empowering on multiple levels. For extra context, I'll add that Lindsay spoke out against the governor in a piece on Medium that she published herself on February 24th of this year. So I've linked to this article in the show notes on our website, statementmondays.com. Cool. So as always, stick around after the interview to hear my top takeaways on what Lindsay talks about. Here we go. Hi, Lindsay. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Perfect. Well, I'd love to have you start by just introducing yourself. Sure. I'm Lindsay Boylan. I'm a mom and a career urban planner and progressive Democrat, and I'm currently running for Manhattan Borough President in New York City. That's really exciting. Um, And so... Who are you? What would you say is your public identity? Sure. I I think I am, I've always been focused on fighting for the underdog and fighting for people who are most uh, in pain because of policy or because of life experience or lived experience. And that's been a lifelong thing. Uh, My parents have told me that when I was very young and I think that that rings very true. No matter what it is that I'm doing, I try and find a way to make it right for people who've experienced the most pain. And that has ended up being an advocate in politics. So would you say that um, that's your origin story for how you got into politics then in the first place? It's just one of these values that your parents imparted on you? Yeah, absolutely. I came from a family that had a lot of challenges and a lot of problems uh, and You know, when I was six, my aunt had come to live with us and unfortunately she died by suicide and that was my first memory growing up. And so I was very well acquainted with women having 
uh, a lot of challenges and she had just lost custody of her kids. She had a lot of, a lot of problems. And, uh, I had a very similar story for my grandmother. Uh, and you know, my, my sister has had some similar challenges in terms of fighting addiction, fighting, you know, mental health battles. And so I think I always wanted to figure out a way to help. And I was the one person in my family that got lifted up in spite of all the things that may have been challenging or problematic around me. So I always was trying to collect talents or tools to do something about it. And that that made me very optimistic, mm. even in environments that were really challenging. So I've always been an optimist and I've always been hopeful and for me, that comes from a place of observing, you know, some bad things and, and continuing to try and place myself in environments where I'm aware of very bad things happening and very much wanting to be a part of making it better for, for people. So I think that that, yeah, very much from an early age, that was kind of what I was about. You do not shy away from hard things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned that from a young age, because of this environment that you grew up in, you like to collect skills and collect things that could uh, enable you to be helpful and useful in these hard situations. What are some examples of those? Yeah, well, from the age of being a little girl, I would always take on the bullies in my neighborhood and they were always boys, uh, but I would always take on the bullies. And as I got older... I got more experienced in writing and public speaking. You know, by high school, I had lobbied Congress um, and I would find a way to organize people. I wasn't very focused on the social scene. Mm -hmm. I was always very focused, though, on organizing people to figure out how to get an outcome. And I thought that was really neat because when I was basically in high school, we moved just outside of Washington, D.C. to Northern Virginia. And my approach to trying to get used to a new environment and culture was to figure out how to have an impact on that. And that was politics and government. Mm -hmm. And so that became um, a world I wanted to navigate. And so I was always, I got pretty well acquainted with and good at figuring out how uh, organizations work. So that became a lifelong interest and I would say ability based on coming from an environment where I didn't have a lot of a big network. You know, my parents weren't powerful. My parents weren't politicians. My family wasn't wealthy. And in fact, when I came to New York, you know, I did it uh, with a hundred bucks in my pocket and then worked my way up to being the secretary for economic development. So, you know, in a state that I didn't come from. So I think that a lot of that had to do with uh, never giving up, being resilient, uh, thinking creatively, trying to problem solve, try to understand and be empathetic of where other people are coming from and trying to always stay connected to a bigger goal that was serving my life's purpose, which has everything to do with helping people in pain and especially women. So it sounds like government and policy is just a natural match for you. Like you didn't have to even think about what to do with your life once you got to New York. Yeah. You know, I, my daughter recently asked me, you know, mommy, what did mama, 
what did you want to be before you wanted to be in politics? What did you want to be when you were a little girl like me? And I said, well, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Wow. And I was trying to think, like, <gasps> was that a break from what I wanted to be? What did that shift? But not really at all, because at the end of the day, I'm originally from San Diego, which is a, a, in a small coastal town. And so to be a marine biologist was constantly trying to understand the world around me mm. and do something about the environment and the place I lived. And so it, it's actually, to me, not that inconsistent at all, because uh, I just found a different approach to try and understand and influence and positively impact the world around me. So, you know, there are probably a lot of other ways I, I could have approached this. And sometimes when I'm having a hard day in politics, I think, you know, maybe I could write a book and have an impact on this in a different way. If, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, regardless of any one campaign outcome, I still have the same goals and agenda. So it's, you know, being creative and being pragmatic. And I think since the beginning of time, women have always had to be pragmatic and creative and resilient in a way that men have not because we're not always welcomed where we want to go. And so we find a different way to get there. Mm -hmm. And so I heard you mention your daughter and I was also told that you call her Boss Vivian. Can you tell me why? Oh, she's just, she's amazing. Every, since she was born, she's been this incredible person. And I always wanted to be very intentional about how I talked to her, about her. Uh, and I wanted her to start out in a world that believed in her and her abilities in a much broader context than the one that I started out in. You know, I mean, when every other little girl wanted to be a princess in kindergarten for Halloween, I was a hot dog. Um, and so, you know, I, I wanted her to have that sense of, you know, options. And she's, she was a little person that was going to grow up and, you know, far surpass me. And she's a boss now, and I think the world of her, and it reflects what I hope for her, which is a lot more than what I think the world has hoped for girls historically. And do you see her thinking of herself as a boss already? How old is she? Oh, yeah. she's She thinks she's a boss. Yeah, she's seven. <laughs> she goes to the playground, and she's, you know, she her whole thing is... How many friends am I going to make today? She loves to like go out and tackle the world. Uh, she's such a boss. And so back to what you were talking about earlier, when you first got to New York, you're clearly in politics. You're currently running for the Manhattan Borough president, right? So, so on your website, I got to read about your approach and um, the impact that you want to make. And you explicitly use the words unapologetic and you use the word bold. And I love that. What made you write those down? What made you self-describe as unapologetic and bold? Yeah, I, I think to some extent, uh, as a woman, especially in politics or in most fields, most of the world still, um, you're expected to live based on what other people think and be successful based on what other people think. And to be clear, I always want to listen to what, um, what others think and how I can best serve them. Mm-hmm. But I very much am guided by a sense that if I do a good job listening 
and I have the right ethical compass, moral compass, mm-hmm. then I should, you know, not listen to the naysayers and I should also not be fearful when I know what the right thing to do is. And that guides me and has sustained me in difficult times as well. And that's on everything from knowing that I wanted to build my career in policy and politics within urban planning. And it's also me knowing that I had to come forward and speak out against my former boss, probably the most powerful, uh, one of the most powerful Democrats in the country uh, and certainly the most powerful politician in New York. So I think that that does require me to sometimes put aside the critiques that a small number of people will have and people who kind of want to tear down folks who know who they are and what they are and and why they're motivated and what motivates them, particularly women. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, in my specific field, we still have an older white male governor. We have an older white male mayor. I'm represented by a member of Congress who's an older white man. Uh, My city council member, my state senator, and my state assembly member are all white men. And, you know, this is not an attack on most of those folks. Um, But at the end of the day, we are still living in a world that uh, has a very narrow lens of what it shows us is, is the model. And if we're ever going to disrupt that, we've got to be willing to take on the critique, knowing that we're moving for a longer term goal. And that motivates me as a woman, that motivates me as a mom, and that absolutely motivates me as a policymaker and a leader. And I would much rather be known and remembered as a leader than a politician. So at every um, juncture where I have to make a decision, it should be the right one, even if it's the harder one with uh, a lot of cost, personal cost associated with it. And that's what I think is meant by being bold and unapologetic. Mm -hmm. It's about doing the right thing and knowing what the right thing is based on experience, abilities, and effective listening, uh, conviction. Yeah. So when you say that you want to take on the critique, what does that mean to you? Yeah. I think it's always important to listen to critique, you know, because maybe it can make me better. Right. So, um, it's putting, it's putting it in the context of where it's coming from and why it's coming at me. So if it's clearly motivated to be a personal attack, then I'll put it in a different bin mm-hmm. mentally, you know, cause as I said, I, I think how my mind works is organizing things. Um, so, but if there's something where someone says, you know, that response, I don't think it's as thoughtful as it could be about this group or this experience or this, you know, we're, we're never done learning, but then there's clearly a, a degree, and I wouldn't say it's a majority, but there is a degree of critique that's entirely based upon um, trying to tear women down and or trying to tear down an opponent like me who happens to be a woman or um, not seeing a vision for, let's say, New York's future that I do around the climate crisis or around inequality, which I think are the two biggest issues of our generation. 
I should always stay the course of knowing that we need to deal with inequality and the climate crisis. And you can stay bold and unapologetic and still learn from critique that is coming at you, right? Like my goal isn't to feed the trolls. My goal isn't to be stopped. So if being reflective and changing my approach to something is gonna get me closer to that goal, then I'm then I should be willing to amend how I'm dealing with something or dealing with someone. Um, but I'm not going to be swayed and I'm not going to be set off course and I'm not going to be dragged down so that someone can take away my passion and my interests and my goals. So I think that's what bold and unapologetic is for me. I love that. And do you have an example that you can share about when you have been bold, but you've still been able to learn from that critique and shift your mindset or your mission? Yeah, I, I think I have to do it pretty regularly. But, uh, you know, one thing I'm very proud of that I did that I feel like was a culmination of a lot of my um, career thus far uh, was when I led the state of New York's recovery work in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. And I loved that work because I had spent, you know, the better part of almost a decade and a half getting to a point where I could help regions of recovery and prioritize people who have been hit the hardest, people who are in the most pain, right? So I finally got to a place where I was senior enough to lead an effort like that, and um, I had the skills to do it. So I went down to Puerto Rico and was in San Juan for a little less than a week, and I led a cross-agency team of you know hundreds of people ultimately in New York working with the Puerto Rican government as as the island had been knocked out and a lot of its resources, you know, destroyed, how do you accurately assess the damage so that you can get Puerto Rico the necessary and warranted aid from the federal government, mm -hmm. especially in the Trump administration when people are uh, racist mm -hmm. and xenophobic and and apt to not try and find reasons not to support Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. The Puerto Rican government needed $94 billion of mm. aid uh, for the recovery. And of course, they haven't received all of that. But being able to put my skills and experience to good use of bringing people together, having learned how to let other people shine and mm -hmm. elevate their skill and work so that we could accomplish something bigger. I think that is one of the things I'm most proud of because the end goal was to me so important mm -hmm. and doing, trying to undo historic and systemic wrongs and, and doing so in a way that elevated the voice and talents of others. I think mm -hmm. that I'm very good at that and I love that. So that was a moment where you had um, federal media, New York media, Puerto Rican media, and politics oh all trying to kind of say, and all these other um, disasters, Texas had had flooding, everyone was competing for funds, and so mm -hmm. it was a very politicized environment, and I was able to bring together people on the New York side around this idea of what we had to do and what our goal was in spite of what else was going on. So that was an incredible moment of my life, I would say. And then on the other hand, you know, a very different example, when I came forward in sharing my experience of working for the governor, I took the time ultimately to tell the story I wanted to tell, not rely on a journalist to tell it for me 
or listen to friends and family who wanted me to kind of say, no, don't do that. Don't put yourself in that position of coming forward and being a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. And I did it because I know that I'm not helping if I don't use my privilege and power and platform to do something about it, right? And and I had removed myself from that environment, but I was aware of people who were very much in that environment. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of people, more people suggested I not do something about it than suggested I do wow. something, far more people. So that was a case where, you know, I was walking into kind of like a burning building. It, it kind of felt like a little bit, but it was for me the right thing to do. And I had the privilege to do it. So, Wow, that's crazy. I mean, if you want to have a career in the public eye, it's definitely a risk to put yourself in a very oppositional position against someone in power. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. It's true. And I don't think people telling me to not share was motivated out of the wrong, you know, thoughts. Like these are people who care about me deeply, Mm -hmm. who said, I think this will be harmful to you. Right. So uh, in many cases, you sometimes are having to take information, maybe learn something from it and still make a decision that is, you know, what we all do with information may be different. And I think that's what I mean when I say that I'm unapologetic and bold, and I hope that every woman and every person gets to experience that. It's not that you're not listening. Mm -hmm. It's not that you're not cognizant, and it's not that you're not respectful of others. It's just that you are driven by um, a deep set of principles and objectives and goals that fuel your sense of what it is to be alive in this world and give you meaning. And you are going to base your decision-making and your resource allocation and your life and your time and your effort on how to, how to respond to that. Let's pause here. Okay, so we've heard some pretty wild things from Lindsay already, including how wanting to both help people in pain and understand how organizations run led her to a career in politics. That and being bold and unapologetic, listening to critique, and the start to this story about being a whistleblower for sexual harassment against Governor Cuomo. Something I want to talk about super briefly in this break is that it's so clear to me that Lindsay is driven by a constant desire to lift others up. We've heard this in almost every story she's told, and what I find particularly striking about her sense of identity is that she has such a clear compass, like such a clear call to action. So when she sees people in pain, that's when she knows that she can and that she wants to help. I think it's really beautiful and also valuable to have something like that. Uh, it's, it's, It's like her bat signal almost. I don't think I've found my bat signal yet personally, but Lindsay inspires me to search for mine. Up next, we'll hear about how being a whistleblower has impacted Lindsay's identity and also how connecting with women of older generations gives her strength. So hang tight. Uh, Real quick before we get back to the interview, I want to say a message about our sponsors, Athletic Greens. So I've been looking for a nutritional supplement because I just know that I'm missing things in my diet, especially when the demands of podcasting alongside my full-time job get stressful. 
Athletic Greens has been able to help with that. It's a comprehensive, all-in-one greens powder developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients. It's specifically engineered to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet and your body's needs, including gut health, immune support, energy, and recovery. And no, it's not just for athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens in a glass of water every morning, or personally, I like to put it in a smoothie, kicks my day off to a great start and helps me sustain energy for longer. So you can get in on this too, just by visiting athleticgreens.com slash statementmondays to get this daily all-in-one superfood powder. And of course, also support Statement Mondays. They're offering my audience five travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D free if you use my link with your purchase. And again, that's athleticgreens.com slash statementmondays. Great. Well, coming up in the interview, you're about to hear some powerful thoughts by Lindsay on how being a whistleblower has impacted her identity and also how connecting with women of older generations gives her strength. Let's jump back in. Yeah, so then your decision to write this article on Medium has had a huge impact. Actually, let me rephrase that. Has this decision had a huge impact on who you are? And has this new identity as a whistleblower against sexual harassment impacted how you hold yourself and yeah. and your identity? Yeah, I think people were not... Let me think about that for a second. Um, I'm very much the same person. I, I actually feel more myself than I had felt in a long time wow. working for the governor, having to work for someone who's an abuser like that and having to kind of subdue what you know is right. And I think one thing that I think is coming forward uh, is that some work environments can be very toxic mm -hmm. and we have not created work cultures that I believe are broadly respectful of women and our whole selves that we bring to the workforce mm -hmm. and that we bring to our passions and our goals. And it wasn't until it was such a pervasive, overwhelming, abusive environment that it really hit home. And it took a while for me to figure out how to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I did something about it that I, you know, kind of had a lot of, I recognized myself as that little girl who was going to fight against the bully, you know, on the block. I felt more myself than I had in a long time. And, and another good friend, she said, you know, Lindsay, your life didn't change when you came forward. Your life changed when these bad things happened to you. Mm. And I think I love that in a way because it kind of speaks to what I just said, which is I'm taking back and I'm verbalizing what matters to me and how I want to live my life. And maybe I have been living this way, but now I've been given an opportunity to make a statement about that mm -hmm. and, and make a statement about my values which very much stem from that thing we were talking about, helping people closest to the pain. And I originally came forward because a young woman got in touch with me 
and shared her story of sexual harassment at the hands of the governor. And it wasn't until I heard her story that I said, I have to act because it didn't just, it's not just me. It's hurting other women. It's hurting mm-hmm. younger women. It's hurting women who've come after me, after I worked there. It's my responsibility to do something about it because I'm older, I have a platform, and I have the privilege to do something about it. So, you know, that really means a lot to me. And as difficult as it was, it was kind of in these moments of, you know, darkness where you kind of are tested. And I've always wondered pretty regularly in a sustained manner if I could be brave in the moments that it really requires it, where the challenges are significant and where the likelihood of me being hurt or harmed are high. And I think this was one of those moments. And so I was very proud of myself and, and I'll be very proud to have my daughter know that about me. I think she won't fully appreciate it. I mean, she's like, are you getting the bad guys? And I'm like, yes, I am. But, um, (laughs) But I don't think she'll appreciate it until she's older. And that will make me very proud, however long I'm alive. What I am proud of is myself and the other women and all of the people and organizations and advocates who say, yeah, that's not right. And all the domino effects that happen when someone says no and when someone speaks up. And I think people do it every day. So I'm no different. And it's not like a, you know, not like I've done something extraordinary. I'm just glad that I've been able to do it in a moment that I knew it was required of me. That's very noble. And it's, I mean, from what you said, you were able to be more yourself in what you do. So this brings me to one of my questions that I like to ask is, do you bring your whole self to work? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, 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 I do. Um, one, one thing that I've shared a lot more, uh, recently than I have in the past is that I'm a natural introvert. So I actually don't enjoy being the center of attention. So it's been an interesting experience being absolutely the center of attention. Um, Mm. not that I, like, I can't deal with it. It's Mm -hmm. just, it's not what, what is of interest to me. And I find it, it's sometimes makes it more difficult for me to listen because I want to show up to an event or some kind of happening and listen so I know what my job is and how I can help. Something that happens when you become a public figure, I find, is that people turn to you and say, well, how can I help you? And I'm turned around and saying, no, I'm supposed to help you. And they say, well, you know. Mm. So I think that part is, um, I'm pretty open about that with my team, that I'm an introvert. And the great thing about being the candidate or being the person is you can try and find ways to kind of make the experience your own. And I think the more women who are in the spotlight in any way, shape or form, uh, we can kind of show how different we are. I mean, for example, in the case of all of the women who've come forward uh, against the governor, we all have pretty different ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. So once I came forward, for example, Charlotte Bennett um, sat down for an interview and, and, and did a conversation with the New York Times. And She has her own life goals and aspirations and interests. And same with Anna Liss and um, same with Karen Hinton and Alyssa McGrath. And the great thing about not being just a symbol, but being one of many is that there are so many different ways we want to approach living. Every next woman who gets to a position of authority and leadership in every field 
gives us two opportunities. Well, many opportunities, but two opportunities that I'm really excited about. One is she makes the door wider for others and she can pull more other more women behind her. And then she can present a model that is different from any other woman who's come before her because we're all different, mm -hmm. right? And I try to present who I am when I uh, come to the table and have the table move to me instead of to the guy who's been sitting at the head of it for the last 20 years, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And in terms of enjoying seeing different personalities and different styles in leadership, uh, you mentioned earlier to me when we were just talking that you really value befriending women in particular of all oh, yeah. different spheres of all different generations. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. So I went to a women's college, Wellesley, which I love. And some of my best friends were my classmates there and friends I've made since. But when I originally, before I even came to New York, when I was trying to figure out exactly what job to take or who to bug to, till I could get a job, I informational interviewed with women across generations and career industries and the like to hear more about their lives and the quality of their careers. And I would just listen. It really um, made me want to pay it forward. So I would always say yes to informational interviews. I mean, I've probably, I, I, I've done hundreds. And what I would always typically try to do is connect the woman with three resources, like our three mm. next contacts, right? Because that's what men do, right? So how do I leave this woman with a few next links? Because when I came to New York and when I started my career, I didn't come from any family that could help me in that sense. But how could we pay it forward? Because if we don't create some new interactions for women, the way that power works is never going to change. And the way that success works is never going to change. And the, the people whose voices are elevated is never going to change. So it was very intentional. And then it was also fun. There's nothing I derive more meaning from than my friendships with and connections to other women and helping them if I can. So it's deeply meaningful to me. It's fun. I try to stay in touch with um, you know, and not just women, but uh, be particularly because I come from, I think, a family of women that had a lot of tragedy and I like broke out of that, no question. I just, it's so restorative. It's so positive. It just, it gives me such joy. I just love it. That's beautiful. I used to, when I, um, before I went to Wellesley, which was this great, like kind of iconic place for women that no one in my family could have ever aspired to go to before me. So um, I think I started getting the Wellesley magazine before I even got there. And in the back, they have all of the class news, like about different generations. And I would start from the oldest generations. And I would be reading, you know, the updates <laughs> from women who had gone 50, 60, 70 years before me wow. and about their lives. And I was like this 18 year old kid doing <laughs> that, which is like, I was such a premature old lady, but, um, <laughs> I just, I just found that so cool and, and redeeming to have that kind of circular connection with women of, of so many different generations and how much you can learn. Right. So I was like a sponge, especially when I was younger. And I still am, you know, I, I, I 
the older I get, I keep trying to like find historical examples. Even when I um, came forward in my allegations against the governor of, of my experience with the governor, I tried to, you know, find, I said, well, where's the example of the woman's career not at all being affected by this. And um, my team, my kind of trust circle that I had brought together, including my lawyer, they're like, well, there isn't one. <laughs> and that was scary because you kind of see yourself looking at the abyss, yeah. like, oh my gosh, like I'm, I haven't done this yet. I haven't like dived back into this thing with the medium piece. And then there are no like examples. Uh, so the older I get, there are more cases where it's like that, where maybe I'm trying to do something that hasn't been done before. And that's really scary. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I have to be, that's the bold thing. You have to be willing to trailblaze a new path because invariably, if you're doing all the right things and you're trying to change the world, you're going to increasingly have these instances where you look for examples, especially of women who come before you, and maybe there isn't one. Mm -hmm. And that's a little scary. But there are always women who have had lived experiences that are the same, who have had the same challenges. And maybe because they had those same challenges, even if they didn't have the same opportunities, maybe I'm going to get to go further. And I'm very cognizant of the fact that when I brought my experience forward, people believed me and newspapers wanted to write about it. And they were, they were aware of things like trauma-informed reporting. You know, all of the things that are positive signs of progress are only possible because someone else didn't succeed at doing it. And yeah. I'm very much aware in my you know, my, my study of history that had I come forward 50, 60 years ago, my story might've been met with institutionalization, right? Mm -hmm. Like I would have been destroyed permanently. Wow. No question. So, so even if there isn't an example of, you know, where I want to go and what I want to be and how I want to move forward, there are a lot of women who got me to the place where it is possible that I don't even know. Women I don't even know. Yeah. So that's really inspiring. And it makes me feel, even when I'm facing something like an abyss of like, oh my gosh, there's no one in front of me or something. There are a lot of women who are behind me to get me to this place where there's no one in front of me. And, and I should always be very thankful to be in that position when I am. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is beautiful. That's truly beautiful. And some great stories behind that. I love that you're reading these updates by grandparents. Do you have a motto, like a life motto? I think it's, um, what can I learn from it? And how can I use it? And how can I keep going? So it's, you know, all the bad things that happened to me, because, you know, I've been the lived exp human experience. There are mm -hmm. a lot of tragedies and sad things that happen. What opportunities do those things that I can't change, mm -hmm. that no one can change, present for me to do something about it for others, right? So my premise that we began with was um, that a lot of what motivates me is trying to fix things for other people that maybe I couldn't fix for my own family or... Um, 
my loved ones and how can I turn that into, how can I turn pain and hardship into something that can be helpful? And mm -hmm. when you view the world that way, nothing can really stop you, right? Um, break it apart, synthesize the information into action. So that I think has been my key to life, which is kind of resilience. And when you have that view, that worldview, which I do, there's always something to be learned and to grow from and to fuel you. So I think that that has, that's been my kind of my whole life. Yeah. Wow. And then, I mean, do you have a moment, a specific moment in your career where you really just have felt totally invincible? I think uh, I'm getting closer, you know? I, there, I always felt like, you know, when you hide some truths about yourself and your experience, then you're in a position of hiding things, right? You're not in a position of strength. And so there's not much left I'm kind of holding close to the belt. This was this experience, my experience in my career working for this governor. Um, mm -hmm. I've talked about my own family and my motivations for coming where I am. There's nothing, there's really, there's not much out there. So I think this is, you know, I'm getting closer and close to, to that sense of invincibility. Um, I don't think I'll ever have that sense of not questioning what I do, mm. but someone's going to tell me I'm doing the wrong thing. No, no, you're not. No, because <laughs> I feel a sense of uh, real empowerment mm -hmm. about who I am, what I'm about. And, you know, you can, you can read it now, I guess it's public information. So there's, what are you going to do? How is someone going to hurt me? You know? That's a phenomenal answer. And I have one final question for you. And this is a question that I ask sure. all of my guests. It's the Statement Mondays classic. And the question is derived from the title of this podcast, Statement Mondays, interviews with women who wear heels to work with the idea that heels is a metaphor. I do. I do wear heels, by the way. <laughs> there you go. So it's, you know, partial metaphor. Um, I do. I do. I have it in the last year. I have it in the last year, but I do wear heels. And so for the sake of this podcast, my definition of heels is just a piece of you, an identity, a trait, internal, external, something you wear, anything really, um, that gives you confidence, that gives you strength, that you wear in your sleeve. So my question to you, Lindsay, is what are your heels? True. So my heels are the women in my family that have come before me and who are always with me when I'm doing hard things. Uh, even sometimes I wear both of the pins of my grandmothers when I give a speech, just so I feel like they're with me. Um, and just knowing that there are so many women who are counting on me and women like me to make a better world just gives me so much confidence to know that I'm doing the right thing. So that's confidence. Those are my heels, the women who came before me. That was a, a lovely answer. <laughs> I love it. No, it's a good question. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for interviewing with me. This was such a pleasure. No, I love, I love what you're doing. I love the emphasis. I think it's such an important role for women. And so I'm really glad you're doing this. And I, I wish you all the continued success. 
That was Lindsay Boylan. So powerful. This interview was just absolutely packed, and I was buzzing after talking with her. We just touched on so many poignant topics, and she's also just so well-spoken. There were two particularly riveting moments in her interview, for me at least. The first was how she took back her identity by writing the piece in Medium about Cuomo. And the second was learning from all the women who have come before her, and this idea of connecting with other generations. So in the beginning, Lindsay talked about the importance of being a listener and how she's learned from critique. Importantly, though, she knows when to listen, and she knows when and how to execute and to take action at the right time. And I think that what exactly restored her sense of self after speaking out was that she's used to being the one who can help and who can ease others' pain, right? But when she was in the position of being a victim, I bet that stripped away her confidence in her ability to do this. It almost, you know, stripped away her mission. And saying that she felt more herself being that whistleblower, she had found a way to use her strengths and her sense of purpose to help other women who were in her same position. I was floored when she was describing her invincibility at the end in that everything is now out in the open, so there's nothing she has to hide, which makes her in a position of strength and not in one of hiding and weakness. Okay, so the second bit then on connecting with women of different generations is actually pretty tied to what we just talked about. So Lindsay did a lot of research, as she said, before publishing her piece on this sexual harassment. I love one of her quotes from this interview, which was, all of the things that are positive signs of progress are only possible because someone else didn't succeed at doing it. Lindsay couldn't find an example of someone speaking up and it not affecting their career, yet she was brave and determined to take this risk, if not for herself, then for the generations that come after her. I mean, wow. Basically, women have to pave the way for other women, and she recognizes what her own place is in this chain of progress. So much respect for her. And then on a personal and also sentimental note, I actually got to spend a lot of time with my grandma, Gwen, or Gaga, before she passed away last year, and I recorded conversations with her about her life as a sort of oral history. These were really magical moments and so intimate. At one point, my grandma was telling me about being one of the only women who was a scientist in a tuberculosis lab at the time, and then how when she got married, nobody would hire her because they expected her to just have kids and leave the workforce. So she never wore her wedding ring to interviews. I think it's really humbling and empowering to hear stories like these by older generations, and younger too, for sure and that illuminate the progress that we as women have made over time. So this interview with Lindsay just reminded me of how simultaneously mundane and just incredible my own conversations with my grandma were. And I really hope that everyone listening to this episode will be inspired to reach out to a woman that they know, whether they're older, younger, related, anything really, and just listen to what they have to say. Happy belated Mother's Day, Gaga. All right, so if you enjoy Statement Mondays, and if you haven't done this already, please click the little button at the top of the Statement Mondays page, wherever you're listening, 
the one that says follow or maybe subscribe. That way you won't forget about me while I'm off preparing for season two. And of course, remember to be bold. Today is Statement Monday. I'm Natalie Munster, my intern is Mallory Pilon, and my audio engineer is Martin Munster. You can learn more about me and Statement Mondays at statementmondays.com or follow us on Instagram at statementmondays. I'd love to hear what you think and how you have been bold lately. So shoot me a DM, whatever. Just please get in touch. I'll see you next Monday. Bye.